you have your Bibles with you this morning, you would turn to Ecclesiastes 3. We'll be in verses 9 through 11 this morning. If you would please stand for the reading of Christ's Word this morning. May you hear the Word of Christ. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its timing. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, but still he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Let us pray. Lord God, creator of all and author of peace, as we are ever mindful for the cost paid for the liberty we possess this day, we ask you to bless the members of our armed forces, give them courage, hope, and strength. May they ever experience your firm support, gentle love, and compassionate healing. Be their power and protector, Lord, leading them from darkness to light. And for our current soldiers, we're reminded of when Abraham left his native land and departed from his people, you kept him safe through all of those journeys. Protect these soldiers. Be their constant companion and their strength in battle, their refuge in every adversity they face. Guide them, O Lord, that they may return home safely. And also we give thanks this morning for your eternal word. We've gathered for no other reason but to worship you. Now speak, Lord, through your servant to guide us in wise and Christ-like living. To you be the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. As you can see from this morning's title, uh, we're learning Latin today. If you didn't catch that, carpe diem or quorum day, working, wondering, and witnessing before God. Uh, some of you might have had Latin in school. Uh, it was necessary at one point. Um, I, w I, I wish we still had it. Uh, I wouldn't be the one to teach it, but I would still wish we had it because uh, I love the Latin language. Um, there's so much that we can gather and take away from Latin language itself, and there's so many phrases that we use in everyday, uh, uh, every week business and every uh, day language business that it's Latin. At least it has its roots in Latin. And so one of the uh, phrases that we're going to look at this morning is carpe diem. We've probably heard this one several times in our life. Carpe diem. It's usually said with expression. And it means seize the day. Seize opportunity. It's this Latin motto that we hear from that infamous scene, if you remember Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams plays Professor John Keating to a group of young men who are very highly impressionable, who are trying to hunger and thirst for wisdom and wonder in their lives. And on their first day of school, Professor Keating asks his students, seize the day, he gives them a verse, seize the day, gather ye rosebuds while you may. What does the writer, why does he use these lines? is what Professor Keating asked the students. And he says it again. Seize the day, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. To which a student says, because he was in a hurry. 
Professor Keating responds, ding, no, thank you for playing anyway. Because, he says to his students, we are food for worms. Because, believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room, he says, is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. Professor Keating is offering a meaning of life for his students. A way of life common to a large group of artists that Professor Keating loves. They're called the Romantics. And the Romantics uh, prized the emotions. They prized the imagination. They prized individual freedom as well as rebellion against social conventions of their day. And so Professor Keating quotes and holds to high esteem such Romantic writers. There's this famous scene where he tells the students to open up his book and he tells them to tear out all the pages up until the point that the romantics begin. Because he believed that that carpe diem that seized the day wasn't just only to be the motto for his life, but the motto for his students' lives, as well as the model that they were to live their lives. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. When we first read Ecclesiastes, the teacher, the speaker here, seems to advocate for a similar motto. If you've read uh, Ecclesiastes as a whole, or if you've even been with us since we started the very beginning of Ecclesiastes 1.1 and to where we're at in uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, you might read and see that Ecclesiastes doesn't have a very happy outlook on life. It looks like, at first glance, very negative. I mean, he keeps asking this question, what is the meaning of life? Meaningless, meaningless. And we've talked about that. But is that really what he's after? Or is he looking at how we go through these cycles of life and we, we seem to think that they're meaningless? We seem to see them again and again and we're tired of them. We're caught up in how they continue to come again. And we could go back and look at the uh, first eight verses of chapter 3 and say, well, there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time for gathering stones and a time for casting them away. So you have all of these times and the seasons of life and you think, gosh, I keep seeing them again and again. What's the purpose? And I think here where we're at with verses 9 through 11, he starts to begin uh, to answer those types of questions. Because when we read Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 11, we might see them with that carpe diem motto in mind. Because I think when we first read these verses, it sounds like this. The children of man toil and work. Many things in life are extraordinarily beautiful. And we have many yearnings and longings as human beings. And it may be the case that we'll never understand our lives fully, but as long as we're joyful and enjoy good things, we'll be fine. So let us eat, drink, and take pleasure in our toil. When we read verses 9 through 11, I think that's what we, how we approach it. But I don't think that's what the teacher is saying. Because let us look carefully at each of those verses. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart. But still, he cannot quite figure out what God has been doing from its beginning to its end. 
there's an obvious difference here. Carpe diem has a sort of pessimistic, negative view of, of life. As Professor Keating says, one day, students, you will stop breathing. You will turn cold and die. That's very negative. That's such a small and shallow view of life. But here, I think the teacher is giving us a more full view, a more robust view of how we are to live our lives. And he holds two realities, I think, in tension. First, sometimes our lives can feel mundane, don't they? It feels like another week, here I go again. It looked just like last week, and here I am again. It can feel so mundane. But the teacher holds another mysterious reality in front of us, and it's this. As mundane as life seems to be, it is a gift of God. And we are to live our lives as if we're receiving that gift every single day. Parents, grandparents, we know what it's like to watch someone open a gift especially children at Christmas. If you're like us, we get up extra early because we know our kids are going to be up extra early. And we are sitting in the dark, eating breakfast, waiting for that moment when the kids wake up and they're above us so we can hear, boom, they jump from their beds and they're running downstairs. And so we wait with amazement as our children run downstairs and they can't wait to get to that tree to see the gifts that have been brought, the, the gifts that have been given. I think that's something like what Ecclesiastes in these verses has in mind, that here we have God giving to his children good gifts every single day, and yes, as mundane as our lives sometimes feel, they are being opened. Those gifts that God gives are being opened every single day. And so we, as his children, are in the face of God. We are before his presence, like us, parents and grandparents, before the faces of our children opening up those presents. So once it comes to understanding Ecclesiastes 3, verses 9 through 11, I don't think there's carpe diem there. I don't think there's a seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. I think it's something more powerful. And it's that other Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Quorum Deo means simply before the face of God. Before the face of God. If I could extend it a little bit more, it means to live one's life in the very presence of God, under the reign of God and for the glory of God. It was a phrase that Martin Luther, the reformer in the 16th century, held closely to him, he realized that all of his life was lived before the very presence of God. And so he gives us this phrase, quorum Deo. And so for a second that we might misunderstand that God cannot see what we're doing, we're mistaken. We've belittled the presence of God if we think that God does not watch us and see us and give good gifts to us. Then we realize if we're living before the face of God that every mundane day of our life is actually a gift and we're called to open up those gifts every single day and so when we talk about quorum Deo we use that very difficult word omnipresence in which God is omni he is always present with us 
there in front of us. So Coram Deo invites us as the church to have this intimate presence with God, realizing he's wrapped around us. And he is the one who is enlivening our minds to see the most ordinary day as extraordinary. And it invites us to a whole way of life in which we are living all of life as a worship before our King. And so let me remind us of the subtitle for today, Working, Wondering, and Witnessing Before God. So let's look at each of these W's in turn as it relates to the activity of what we're doing before God's face. Work. Teacher asks this question, what gain has the worker from his toil? To which he responds, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. First, the teacher says that God has given humanity work as a gift. Labor, work, stewardship can sometimes be burdensome, can it? We can see it as uh, a drudge in the day. But when we go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, he gives Adam and Eve work. We have to remember that that takes place before the fall. Work is a gift and it's not a curse. What happens at the curse is that work becomes, what? A sweat to the brow. It becomes burdensome that we sometimes see that work is so difficult. But it can be seen as a gift and an act of worship before our king. So once it comes to work before the face of God, we shouldn't think for a moment that our work isn't any different from Adam and Eve's work. It was a gift. Ours, too, is a gift. G.K. Chesterton always had uh, such a winsome way to say things. He said this, This is the great fall, the fall by which the fish forget the sea, the ox forgets the meadow, the clerk forgets the city, Every man forgets his environment, and in the fullest and most literal sense, he forgets himself. It is a strange thing that men have actually spent hours of time speculating upon the precise location of the Garden of Eden. And here's the part to pay attention to, church. He says, most probably we are in Eden still. It's only our eyes that have changed. Now, obviously, we're not in the, the Eden he's talking about. But his point is this, that we can miss so much in our life by looking in the wrong direction. Can't we? We can look at our lives and, and we could complain about that one thing, especially work, and we could miss the gift that it is. We could miss that we're doing it in the very presence of God himself. So as it relates to work, we can often uh, labor in getting the work done, but miss that it's an act of worship. We can often see our labor as numbers and data. I speak of that as a seventh grade teacher. But we miss the people we're supposed to be serving. Or we can see deadlines and dates, but we miss that how these skills are done and performed are in the very presence of God himself. And so our eyes, as Chesterton notes, need to change. And it is Christ who gives this change to our eyes. So what does work look like in the face of God? First, I think we need to see that God doesn't get our jobs wrong. He doesn't. 
the job that you're doing, the calling that you have right now, the vocation that you are in, he doesn't get it wrong. That where you are is where you need to be right now. In this season of time, if there's something that we've gathered from Ecclesiastes is that God has this timing, this season for you right now. We cannot see it in its full, but it's there. And so he is inviting us that whatever that calling, that life that you're in, be faithful and worship Christ. In his wise providence, God has us in the right position that we're in. And so Ecclesiastes asks us this, will we live wisely in that right timing, in that right season? And when we do this, church, I think we're giving the Scripture hands and feet. The question that we need to remind or ask ourselves, are we allowing the Scriptures to soak in us, to live in us, to move in us, so that we can live out those Scriptures and so when the scriptures stir inside us, they always find their way into our minds and into our hearts and into our bodies, and they will give us strength, I promise. When we feast on the scriptures every single week, they will give us strength to live them out. So if Christ is your foundation and focus, you will not find any meaningless moments in your work. You will not. If Christ is our foundation and focus, you will not find any meaningless moments. They are all chock full of his goodness and grace. But even in our work, God is working in us. Even in our work, God is working in us. We don't see it all the time, that work that's happening. But let me assure you, you could go to Romans 8, 26 and 27. You could go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and see that what Christ is doing is this active work in us as we live out our lives. It's hard for us to see those things. It's hard for us to have those types of eyes, but this goes back to Chesterton's point. Will we have eyes to see that he is in the midst of our presence and we are in the midst of his presence and he is actively creating and actively laboring through our hearts and our heads in our hands. And so there's some questions that I would put in front of us as it relates to your work and your calling, where you're at in this season of life. And these questions would be, how might I serve others as you first served us, Christ? How can the work of my hands benefit others this day? Another question would be, how can I display holiness, goodness, truthfulness, and mercy this day to my coworkers, to my children? What does, and last one, what does Christian stewardship and care look like in my workplace? How can we give life and presence to those things? And so when we ask these types of questions with humble intentions and desiring the will of the Father, He will meet with us and even work through us in those times. That's just the first couple of verses of Ecclesiastes 3. That's just verses 9 and 10. Let's move next to how the teacher writes, God always makes beautiful timing. Also, he has put eternity into the man's heart, but still one is unable to discern what God has done from beginning to end. I'll deal with the first verse about beauty and then come to the second part about how God puts eternity into our hearts. 
So this deals with the second W, wonder. We dealt with work and now let's look at wonder. Think just doesn't quite fit. I mean, yeah, I needed another W to make the alliteration work. So wonder was far more fitting, but think it just doesn't fit. Because we can think about lots of things in our day, but do we wonder about them? Because wonder, what we do when we wonder is we look at whatever it is in our life and we try to fit it into how this takes place in God's story, how this fits into God's plan, how this fits into God's redemptive project and what he's doing. You can think about many things, but if you wonder, if you can see how even work in your daily life is fitting into his redemptive story, then that's far different. So I think wonder is so much more clear than thinking because wonder involves amazement, awe. It involves admiration. So when we think of something beautiful that catches our attention, we don't just think about it. We're marveled by it, of how God could give us this position at this time for this season of life. And we're amazed by it. God always makes beautiful timing. And so we can see that, and we've ventured through that for several weeks from verses 1 through 8, of how God set those seasons in our life of when to act wisely. And I'll let you go back and read those another day, or maybe this afternoon, because maybe he's setting a season of love for us at this time. Maybe he's setting a season of gathering stones at this time for you. But his wise timing is perfect. But we have this tendency, don't we, to criticize God for his timing. That's all too human for us. Yet if we look back in retrospect, we discover that his agenda and timing was better all along. We can sometimes criticize God and say, well, you're too late. You never showed up. But in retrospect, it has a different feel. As they say, when we look back, it has a 2020 vision about it. When we can see everything of how it built up and developed to our present time. I hope, church, we can often reflect on God's beautiful timing in our lives over the years. And when you sit back and examine your life, you'll see the hand of God in that year, in that moment, at that event. Somehow he was there. We don't see it at the present, but he was there doing his work. Because when we're in awe of God's beauty and beautiful timing, that becomes an act of worship. That's what wonder is. We are amazed and in awe of what God has done. But let's look at that second part. Teacher, the teacher says God puts eternity into human hearts. But still, one is unable to discern what God is doing from its beginning to its end. What does the teacher mean by this phrase? He puts eternity into man's hearts. First, I think he's saying one thing. He's humbling humans to remember that we're not God. We cannot play that role. That's far too big. We can't. Second, and connected to the first, as humans, if we were to borrow St. Paul's phrase, we see in a mirror dimly. We don't see the full picture. We see from our human perspective of what is happening. We cannot see what God did at the beginning. 
This is the reminder that God gives to Job. Were you there when I set the foundations of the world? He's reminding him, you are human and I've got something bigger and better for you. Would you just listen? Or do we know exactly, exactly what he's doing in, it, in its final end? Well, no. We get glimpses and pieces, but we cannot see it in its full. He is the sovereign Lord over history, and we are creatures of it. And third, I think what this is saying is that God has put a longing in our hearts for another world, an eternal world. So let me see uh, if I can pull all of these points together. Even though we cannot comprehend the depths of God's plan, we deeply long to be a part of God's plan. Let me say it one more time. Even though we cannot comprehend the depths of God's plans, we deeply long to be a part of God's plan. C.S. Lewis, another writer who always had a way of words, said this. In one of his works called The Weight of Glory, he describes human longing as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have not yet visited. That is a sense of wonder, church. And as I said earlier, that's a form of worship. But now we lead to our third W, witnessing. As I've said before in sermons past, the word witness uh, in Christian camps and circles can mean several different things. Uh, we typically think of witnessing as telling somebody about Jesus. And that's good. We should be thinking of witnessing in that sense. We should be telling people about Jesus. Often, in fact. But let me be frank for a second, church. Of the many conversations I've had with people who are skeptical of the church, people who are seeking some sort of spiritual reality, and those who are suspicious of church over the years, they long for meaning. Every single one of them. They long for meaning. They're searching for community. They are searching for people that they can trust. And lastly, they long to have that eternity in their hearts fully satisfied. They won't rest. And I would make the argument this morning that Christ is the answer for all of those. And so, yes, we should be there in front of those skeptics and those seekers and those who are suspicious of the church. But as I've also noticed over the years is that there's no one way of doing something, especially once it comes to witnessing. There are many methods of witnessing Jesus told us to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Paul told us to speak the truth in love. Peter told us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And John recorded Jesus saying that the world will know us by our love. This morning, I'm not going to offer any specific ways. And this is something that Blake and I talked about this morning in Sunday school. I'm not going to offer any specific ways as it comes to uh, methods of witnessing, but I would invite you to submit your work and your wonder before the very face of God this week. And I'll close with these verses from Paul as he's writing to the Philippian church. 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, consider these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful that we can come before your face this morning. We can come into the very presence of God as we have gathered around your word so that your spirit would lean into us and remind us of that eternity in our hearts, that we long for another place, a place where we can be fully satisfied, where our hungers and our thirsts are fully met in you. And so whether we're talking about our work this week and how you can be right there before our eyes as we work, that you are, as I said, the foundation and focus of our presence. May we work before your face. May we work for your glory and praise, not for ours. Or whether we're wandering as we're trying to fit our lives into your bigger story of redemption, may we wander. May we be in awe that you have pulled us from our brokenness and sin and you have set us aside as a people to represent you, to be ambassadors of your kingdom. And so that is a call to witness. That as we proclaim with our lips and our lives that Jesus is king and that there is no other, May we witness that you are Lord, that you are sovereign over every event. And no, we cannot discover the full scheme that you have planned, but we get hints of it. The scriptures reveal these hints. The scriptures teach us of what it means to be wise. The scriptures teach us of how to live Christly in our world. And so, Lord, may you continue to teach us as your people to be true witnesses of the king may you do that this week in our work may you do that this week as we wonder and may you do that as we witness before others we offer these things in the name of christ amen ezra why are you not going to gene's house